1: Child labor is used in some of the most dangerous jobs in the U.S. That's according to a new investigation by the New York Times. It paints a picture of migrant children working throughout the manufacturing industry. Interviews with 60 caseworkers found that two-thirds of unaccompanied migrant children end up working full-time. Child labor law violations have nearly quadrupled since 2015, according to data from the Labor Department. Meanwhile, some states are looking to loosen child labor restrictions to meet hiring needs. A bill in Iowa would allow children as young as 14 to work in freezers and meat coolers with training from their employer or their school. So how did we get here, and what needs to be done to address child labor violations? I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. We'll be back after this short break.
0: This message comes from Capital One, offering commercial solutions you can bank on. This message comes from NPR sponsor Rosetta Stone, an expert in language learning for 30 years. Right now, NPR listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership to 25 different languages for 50% off. Learn more at rosettastone.com NPR.
2: This message comes from NPR sponsor Mint Mobile. From the gas pump to the grocery store, inflation is everywhere. So Mint Mobile is offering premium wireless starting at just $15 a month. To get your new phone plan for just $15, go to mintmobile.com slash switch.
0: What does it mean to be black in America? An NPR's Black Stories Black Truths, a collection of stories as varied, nuanced, and dynamic as black experiences, you'll hear. It means everything. Search NPR Black Stories Black Truths wherever you get your podcast.
1: Let's start the conversation by welcoming Hannah Dreyer. She's an investigative reporter with the New York Times. Her latest investigation looks at the exploitation of unaccompanied migrant children in the workforce. And the week after the story went live, the Biden administration has promised reforms, and both Republicans and Democrats have called for investigations. Hannah, welcome to the program.
3: Thank you for having me, Jen.
1: So you report more than 130,000 children entered the U.S. by themselves last year, and that's an unprecedented number of unaccompanied minors. Do we know how many of them are working?
3: I mean, we are talking about thousands and thousands of children who are working full-time in jobs that children should never do. It's really a child labor scandal in America. Just in the past three years, more than 300,000 of these children have crossed the border. And as you say, most of them are ending up In these jobs, we found children working for Cheerios, Chewy Bars, Ford and General Motors, Fruit of the Loom socks. It's really throughout the American supply chain.
1: Hannah, you report nearly half of unaccompanied minors entering the country are from Guatemala. What's pushing them to the U.S.?
3: Children are coming partly for economic reasons. The economy in Guatemala has really just sunk since the pandemic. And these families are telling us they often don't have enough to eat. They don't have running water. The parents often would rather come themselves, but they know that they'll be turned around at the border. And so instead, children are coming and sending money back to their families. Many of the
1: jobs these children are working, as you said, are in the manufacturing industry. Give us a few more details on the types of jobs we're talking about.
3: These are often overnight jobs. So children will be cleaning a slaughterhouse overnight. They'll be working the swing shift, making snack foods. I spent a lot of time in Grand Rapids talking to children who were working making chewy bars and nature valley bars. They're working around conveyor belts that federal law says children should never work around. These are machines that have sliced off fingers, ripped open scalps, and kids are working eight-hour shifts around this really hazardous machinery.
1: You spoke with 100 migrant children as part of your reporting process. Is there a story that really stays with you?
3: I mean, one thing that struck me is that a lot of these children are coming through the system that the federal government put in place to try to keep them safe. So these are not children who are in the shadows or who are here undocumented. I spoke with one child, Neri, who met an adult when he was 13. The adult said that he would help him. He could come to the U.S. and he could go to school. Neri went through Health and Human Services' shelter system and was released to this man. When he showed up in Florida, the man said, well, you now owe me $4,000 you're going to have to find your own place to live and you're going to have to work every night until 3 a.m. to pay me back. And Neri was just so on his own. He told me he had no idea this is what he was going to. And when he came, he really felt trapped.
1: We got this email from Pat who says, please give ages when talking about migrant children. Children under 14 is one thing. Children 17 to 18 is another. Fine for children 17 to 18 to work. Anna, can you give us some more context?
3: I think that's a really important point. As I've been reporting, a lot of people have been telling me, you know, I worked when I was a teenager and I also worked when I was 13 and 14, but this is not the kind of job that native-born children would have worked. It's not that children aren't allowed to work. Some studies actually show it's good for children to work a couple hours after school, but child labor laws are in place to try to keep children physically safe And we're talking about kids on roofing sites, kids driving earth movers, working with head splitters. That's something that even a 17-year-old should never do because it's dangerous. An 18-year-old, you know, child labor law ends there. An 18-year-old can do any of these jobs, work any of these hours. But when we're talking about young kids, it really is a safety issue. And, And what was the age range of the kids you talked to? The youngest kids I personally talked to were 12 and 13. Talking to advocates, we hear that they sometimes are encountering 8-year-olds, 7-year-olds who are in these jobs. Um, I think those children would be a lot harder for a reporter to talk to. Mm -hmm. Um, But just going out to day labor sites, it was easy for me to find 12 and 13-year-olds who were working full-time instead of going to school.
1: Well, one of the statistics you cite in your investigation is the number of migrant children killed on these jobs. These deaths are tracked by the Labor Department, but haven't been made public since 2017. You found reports of 12 migrant children who were killed at work since then. Tell us more about what you discovered.
3: I mean, as I say, child labor law is about physical safety, and children are twice as likely as adults to get hurt. So it's terribly sad, but I'm not surprised that we found so many cases of of children who were killed on the job. Some of these children were killed their first day on the job, on a roofing job, falling 50 feet. One child was killed right here in Brooklyn, where I live. He was 14 and working as a food delivery worker and was killed on his bike. And this is something that's actually changed since the story was published. Members of Congress have called on the Department of Labor to start publishing this data again. I was able to find 12 cases, but I don't think those are all the cases that are out there.
1: What happens when one of these children are killed at work? How do their families, is there any mechanism for them to get accountability
3: for them being killed in a job? They shouldn't have been working in the first place? The families often are very focused on getting these children's bodies back to Guatemala or where they're from so that they can be buried. And that ends up being another huge undertaking for the family. As far as accountability, sometimes there's a fine, but the fine for child labor violations right now tops out at $15,000. For a lot of these companies, I mean, they'll make that back in less than an hour.
1: You write that part of your reporting process included suing for information about migrant children who'd arrived in the U.S. since 2021. Some of that information included where these children were living. Just walk us a little bit through the process you had to go through to find these kids.
3: So, my first call with this reporting was to Health and Human Services, because that's the agency that is really responsible for trying to protect these kids from trafficking and exploitation. And I asked people there what are you seeing as far as these kids working? And they sort of told me, we don't know. We don't track them after they're released. Some people who work at the agency told me, I hope you find out because I really worry about what happens to these kids, but we just have no way of knowing. And so I sued the department for information about all 300,000 kids released in recent years. And they then used that information to find clusters of kids who were being released to strangers and family friends, most kids at this point don't go to their parents. They go to maybe a relative, a distant relative. And we really focused in on areas where kids were going to people who seemed more likely to put them to work because they're not a relative, they're not a parent. And I was really shocked, but HHS itself was not tracking this information. The data that we found, although they could calculate it, it was you know, news to them.
1: Last week, the Department of Labor and the Department of Health and Human Services announced a joint effort to crack down on child labor law violations, and particularly the exploitation of unaccompanied migrant children. Their plans came days after a sweeping New York Times investigation went live. Let's check in with those departments and hear what that effort would look like. Joining me now is January Contreras. She's the Assistant Secretary at the Administration of Children and Families, which oversees the Office of Refugee Resettlement. It's part of HHS. January, welcome to the program. Thank you. Also with us is Seema Nanda, Solicitor of Labor at the Department of Labor. Seema, welcome. Thank you, Jen. So we've been speaking about the labor exploitation of migrant children. A recording obtained by The New York Times shows Health and Human Services Secretary Javier Becerra in a meeting pushing staff to release migrant children to sponsors more quickly. If Henry Ford had seen this in his
0: plans, he would have never become famous and rich. This is not the way you do an assembly line. And, and kids aren't widgets, I get it. But we could do
4: far better than this.
1: January, just to be clear, the New York Times confirms that you were on that phone call. How does the Office of Refugee Resettlement place children in safe places when there's also what seems like a pressure to release kids as quickly as possible?
5: Well, the Office of Refugee Resettlement is made up of really incredible people who are working with a focus on the safety of the kids we serve every single day. Um, and so there's two values in that, right? One is safety safety is the number one value of this throughout. We're making sure that our vetting processes are what they need to be. Um, And at the same time, we know that we can do that safely. 85 to 90% of the time we are in fact, placing children with their own family members. Um, And we wanna do that in in, in a way that, that they don't have to spend too much time in large congregate care settings. Um, it's very well established that for children, the best place for a child is in a community with the family and not in those long, large congregate care settings. So, you know, we're we're working to do that, but we are working to do that in very safe ways. And again, 85 to 90 percent of the time, reuniting
1: kids with their own family. But you can confirm that children have been released into unsafe environments.
5: Well, I mean, what what I would say is we, we run that risk Um we also at, at HHS oversee child welfare funding. There is always a risk um, to young people when they are not when they are separated from their parents for any amount of time. And so the vetting process that we have is set up to make sure that we're checking backgrounds and we're putting them in places where they will be safe.
1: How do you qualify a safe environment? What are the rules around that and how much follow-up is there to ensure that environment remains safe for the child?
5: Well, when it comes to vetting, um, we have a process that looks at people's backgrounds. We're making sure that we don't see red flags there. And if we do, then we put extra vigilance and scrutiny in place. In terms of follow-up, you know, this has been a priority of this administration and continues to be. Since the beginning of the administration, HHS has doubled the number of children and families receiving services and well-being checks after they leave our care. So I think it's important to understand that um, all the public servants that are at the Office of Refugee Resettlement have been very focused on uh, making sure that we're we're increasing those services, that we're building um, those checks into young people after they leave our care.
1: January, are you are you still confident in those numbers, uh, considering the fact that the New York Times investigation revealed that about two-thirds of all unaccompanied migrant children are working full-time? Do you feel like some of that vetting process needs to be revisited or the follow-up process needs to be revisited to ensure your numbers are accurate?
5: Uh, yeah, these numbers... Definitely accurate. And it's something that this administration has worked hard to uh, prioritize in terms of reaching out um, to provide some level of of touch basis. So we're checking in with the kids um, or or, or making that follow up call to, to ask our kids in school, do you know when your immigration court date is coming up? Are there any um, services that uh, a child or, or their family needs to be connected to?
1: But again, how do you marry that with the reporting from the New York Times that two-thirds of these kids are working full-time? Does that seem safe for children?
5: Well, what I, of course. What you know, this, this task force is about cracking down on child labor. Um, and obviously, the Department of Labor um, has been increasing their efforts on that. It's been a priority there. And we will uh, be working with them on that. So child labor, it's absolutely unacceptable. Um, and there needs to be more done to make sure that employers are being held accountable.
1: Seema, one of the commitments uh, that the administration is making is holding companies accountable for using child labor in their supply chains. What are the consequences for brands and companies that are found to be in violation of child labor laws?
6: So I I think when we're talking about brands and companies, what we do at the Labor Department is we distinguish between those who are employers and those who are not employers. One of the things that we are looking to do is make sure that every employer is held accountable. So in some cases, you have a company that might be a staffing agency, but perhaps there is another employer there. Perhaps that's the employer at the actual um, site of work. We are going to be looking very carefully at that. Another tool at our disposal is something called the Hot Goods Provision of the Fair Labor Standards Act. And this is a very powerful tool because under the Hot Goods Provision, the Labor Department can seek a court order to prevent the interstate shipment of goods that have been made in violation of child labor provisions of the Fair Labor Standards Act. So this would also get at those employers who are in the supply chain who cannot get their goods because uh, they are made with child labor. Child labor has to be identified within the last 30 days. Um, also a very powerful tool, one that we, uh, we are using in these child labor cases now. And we are also looking as creatively as possible to really think about supply chains. It is unacceptable for any company in America to have child labor in their supply chains. So we will be using every lever that we have to hold them accountable.
1: Well, there's been a nearly 70% increase in child labor violations since 2018. That's according to data from the Department of Labor. Yet some states are moving to loosen child labor laws. How, How does the DOL plan to address the ways labor laws are changing state to state?
6: So let me be clear. No state can lower the floor that federal law provides. So even if a state passes a law that purports to allow children to work in dangerous occupations that federal law prohibits, or hours that federal law prohibits, that conduct would still be prohibited by federal law, and we will still do our enforcement work. State law can't change the federal floor for wage and hour laws, and we are monitoring those bills very carefully.
1: Another commitment listed is following up with children who report unsafe working conditions to uh, the Office of Resettlement. In the New York Times investigation, some of the children reported calling the National hotline to report abuses, but they received no follow-up. January, what has been happening all this time when kids are calling about violations and not hearing anything back?
5: Thanks, Jen. Uh, The National Call Center is a tool that's in place for um, any kinds of concerns or just questions for the young people that we serve as well as their families or their sponsors or others. Um, The the article that you were talking about did mention two young people um, who didn't receive follow-up. What we do is when we do receive any kind of question or concern, Let's say someone is not in school. Um, we at through the call center, a specialist will then report that to child protective services. Um, as for any child, when a child is not in school, that's the uh, part of the infrastructure that we have, that the that youth-centered infrastructure that, that exists throughout the country. Um, so our call center would make a call to them so that they can follow up on that. Um, and what we've said is that. Knowing that, you know, we had at least these two young people who didn't receive follow-up, that we're also um, letting the children know, giving them ex- the phone numbers as well. You know, we want to be able to, if there is um, any child labor involved, we want to make sure we're giving them a department of labor hotline phone number that we are sharing resources directly with those young people. So to, but have you identified
1: where the breakdown actually happened if these two children didn't receive follow-ups to their reports of abuse was the breakdown at HHS or was it at the state level or somewhere else?
5: Yeah, that's hard to tell because the system counts on working together. So that's why we're de- adding in this additional safeguard To, you know, to try to avoid those gaps. We don't want them to exist. When, you know, a young person calls us, we want to be able to make sure they get follow up for that, that helps them.
1: Seema, there's a lot of emphasis on punishing companies using child labor in the supply chain. How does the DOL plan to address the staffing agencies and subcontractors that companies use to hire employees?
6: So one of the things we're doing, as I mentioned before, is we are, we are invoking the hot goods provision where that is relevant. We are also looking carefully at who is the actual employer and are there multiple employers in this situation? Um, we're also thinking about other tools at our disposal. Is that, is that someone in the supply chain that is seeking federal dollars? Um, these are all tools that the federal government has at its disposal. Um, one of the things that we did in um, the PSSI investigation, which was a large child labor investigation uh, started late summer that we just uh, concluded or concluded we'll be monitoring them for several years. But one of the the tools that we used in uh, that investigation was um, making sure that we're having PSSI monitor its supply chain as well. And when we published Uh, the press release in this area, we didn't just include PSSI. We included every meatpacking facility that was employing child labor. So some of it, when we don't have tools directly at our disposal, we're making sure the public knows that these are companies that at their work site, there was child labor. And we printed the age of those children that were found at those those work sites and uh, where they were.
1: Ultimately, HHS is the agency responsible for these kids. On um, January, you release them to their sponsors. In theory, at least, you know where they are. You know the, con- the conditions they're living in. Ultimately, this is HHS's responsibility. So what role does your agency have to play in this issue of children being, being exploited?
5: We have um, this really incredible humanitarian responsibility Created with bipartisan support from Congress, recognizing the kids are different, right? Kids now have this care through HHS. The objective is they're not going to spend a day longer in the custody of the Department of Homeland Security than is necessary. They're going to come into a child-centered environment, which has been built by a team focused wholly on the safety of well and well-being of kids. And then we look for, um, you know, where where where's their home? Um, and so again, eighty five to ninety percent of them, they have that, the the family, their parents, a grandparent, a sibling, that are going to be able to um, take that care.
1: But but to your to your to use your numbers, what does that mean for the ten to fifteen percent of children who are in unsafe conditions right now?
5: Well, I definitely would not agree. The 10 to 15 percent are un, in unsafe situations again, a lot of care, and especially when we're talking about that 10 to 15 percent, so much scrutiny goes into place to make sure those are safe settings.
1: But particularly again, because it's not family, but again, but do you agree about, that, it's, about, that it's not enough scrutiny? That clearly some kids are falling in the cracks.
5: Um, I, I don't think that that has that number has anything to do with um less scrutiny because there's a lot of scrutiny. What we're talking about today is child labor. Um, and what we're working against in this space and also increasing um, our the, the visibility of with the kids we serve and with their families and sponsors is what child labor laws are in our nation. Um, I went on a home visit and this was with a father where there was a little extra scrutiny put into place because um, Other kids were in in the home. When the person I was observing asked him how many, how long had he gone to school? You know, to what grade? He said ni un dia, not one day. Um, And and that is acknowledging that the violence that exists where they're coming from, the poverty, the the instinct to survive that sends these kids to our country, a country that cares enough to put HHS and Office of Refugee Resettlement services in place. They're here to survive. And part of that survival is sending home to their families.
1: Well, well, one of the commitments being made is an audit of how the Office of Refugee Resettlement has vetted sponsors of unaccompanied migrant children in the past. Very briefly, will the information from this audit be made public?
5: You know, I can't speak to um, you know what the rollout would be of that, but I can say this. We are constantly looking at that vetting process. It is not my expectation that there are big changes to be uncovered because there's been so much work um, in it. But every time we learn something new and the increase on employers – Using kids for child labor is certainly um, the kind of factor that, that makes us go back and look again and see if there are other things that we can be adding into what is a very vigilant process.
1: That's January Contreras. She's the Assistant Secretary at the Administration of Children and Families, which oversees the Office of Refugee Resettlement, and Seema Nanda, Solicitor of Labor at the Department of Labor. Thanks to you both for joining us. We're discussing child labor in the U.S. We'll be back with more in just a moment.
0: This message comes from NPR sponsor REI Co-op. REI has gear, clothing, classes, and advice for camping and glamping, biking and hiking, axing and snacksing, backpacking, and another outdoor thing that rhymes with backpacking. Visit your local REI Co-op or REI.com for the million and one ways you can opt outside.
2: Support for NPR and the following message come from Scholastic with Hummingbird by Natalie Lloyd. Now in paperback, Hummingbird is a funny, magical tale about Olive, a girl with brittle bone disease who refuses to let her disability stand in the way of adventure. In this country,
5: some truths aren't self-evident.
1: Now let's get back to our panel on child labor, and let's bring two new voices to the conversation. Reed Mackey is the Director of Child Labor Advocacy at the National Consumers League and the head of the Child Labor Coalition. Reed, it's nice to have you.
4: Thank you. Happy to be here.
1: And also joining us, Terry Gerstein, the Director of the Project on State and Local Enforcement at Harvard Law School's Center for Labor and a Just Economy. Terry, welcome to the program.
7: Thank you. Thank you for having me.
1: Hannah, I want to come to you first, just to get your overall reactions to what we heard from HHS and the Labor Labor Department.
3: Thank you. I mean, Jen, you did an amazing job just now trying to get HHS to engage with this issue. Even one time, HHS has never acknowledged to us or anywhere that I've been able to find that a single child released by the agency might be working or might be exploited. And I mean, I heard January say that HHS is working to release these children safely. I heard her say that child labor is bad. But I just want to be clear. Every single child we are talking about on this program, in this reporting, was released by HHS to an adult who then put them to work. And I just, I find it mind-blowing the avoidance that we're seeing at this agency of of talking about that real issue here. Reid,
1: what about you? What were your reactions?
4: Well, yeah, I I, uh, I kind of share uh, Hannah's shock. Shock. Uh, we've been concerned about unaccompanied minors for a very long time, and whether they might be working, um, especially in farm work, and also might be being sex trafficked. Um, so, yeah, we definitely would have liked to have seen more priority put on um, on uh, you know whether they were uh, in danger of child labor or not uh, when they were you know when they were released from detention.
1: And Terry, what about for you, especially as we're seeing this? increase in in changes around child labor laws at the state level?
7: Well, I thought it was, you know, just first off, to start out kind of bouncing off of what... um, Solicitor of Labor, Seema Nanda said, I thought that, you know, the measures that she described were important and valuable measures. But there are some real changes that the Department of Labor that she is not able um, to effectuate. You know, for example, they have grossly inadequate funding for enforcement. Um, there are difficulties under the current law of holding the lead res- corporations responsible. And so it's great that they're using the hot goods provision, that they're looking about who's used, who are federal contractors, um, that there might be leverage there. But there's some fundamental problems in our law and in our funding that create a problem.
1: Hannah, I'd love to hear you respond specifically to HHS's um, belief in their vetting process and, and the number of kids who they say are released to family members.
3: Thank you so much for asking about that. So the numbers are about a third of kids are currently going to parents. It used to be that most of these children were going to their parents. And that's really one of the things that's changed in the past couple years. Now most are not going to their parents. Um, But also, we've seen kids who went to their parents and then still ended up in labor exploitation. I personally spoke with a 12-year-old in Alabama who was living with her mom but had been working full-time making parts for Hyundai and Kia. After that, most of the kids are going to relatives. So this could be an uncle they've never met, a cousin. This is where we found the most children who were actually being put to work. And then about 15% of children are going to a non-relative. So we really focused our reporting on that majority of children who are going to a non-parent and found, just like the caseworkers are saying, that most of these children were working full-time. So we
1: have these commitments from the Labor Department and HHS to address the labor exploitation of migrant children. Read what do these commitments mean for you and in your job as an advocate against child labor?
4: Well, it's, uh, you know, it's just critical that we get the kids out of these dangerous situations. You know, we don't want, I mean, th- this is not work that's fit for, for uh, minors. Um, so it's really important that they've responded. Um, you know, I, th- I think overall we were pretty happy with the way D- uh, DOL responded with some of their ideas, um, you know, particularly the, the strategic enforcement initiative. Um, you know, it's clear that the kids should have uh, been discovered working in these plants before. Um, it's worrisome that it, it took a while for you know for it to happen, and it and I think it was all, you know primarily because one of the kids um, um, suffered caustic burns while they were at work that the news kind of you know filtered to Dol, and then the investigation was launched. Um, so. You know, we're somewhat encouraged, you know, there's an area of child labor that we haven't talked about today, and that, that involves farm worker children. Um, the U.S. has incredibly weak child labor laws, and it allows children who are only 12 years old to work unlimited hours in the field as long as they're not missing school. So uh, you meet kids in, in the summer who might be working, you know, 70 to 80 hours a week, and uh, you know, field work is dangerous too. Um, it's it's backbreaking, you know, the conditions are horrible. So we would really love Congress to change the law, raise the age at which kids can work. Um, and we'd love DOL to provide, um, you know, more enforcement in that area as well.
1: Child labor law violations are on the rise since 2015. Terry, do we know why?
4: You know, I
7: think there's a number of different um, reasons for that. I think, um, One big reason in the last couple of years is because of the labor shortage. Um, Employers, instead of improving working conditions to attract workers, are turning to a vulnerable and exploitable workforce. Um, In the last couple of years, there have been fewer workers because of deaths from COVID, disabilities from COVID, Higher rates of retirement, a decline in labor market participation of people 65 and over. Um, Immigrants, um, because of a variety of reasons, um, including anti-immigration sentiment, as well as various closings of the borders and tightening of enforcement, immigration enforcement are not coming in. Um, And so there is this labor shortage. And in, in the face of that, um, employers are, think, you know, looking for another pool of workers. And what is interesting as well is that you see this push for more use of child labor. You know, there are these horrible situations, these horribly exploitive situations, um, like the ones that Hannah um, wrote about and investigated and we've been talking about. But there's also been much higher um, rates of violations of You know more sort of ordinary kinds of employment that teenagers might have, like among fast food restaurants. Chipotle has paid about nine million dollars in penalties in um, Massachusetts and New Jersey for violating hours uh, hours laws and the limits on children's work hours, Um, and so. And as you noted, there are these moves afoot in various states to weaken their child labor laws. As um, Seema Nanda said, the federal law is a floor and states can't legislate below that. Um, so there's a question of what does it even matter if these states are going below the federal requirements? But I do think it signifies something in terms of where we are or parts of our society are going as a society and what is increasingly being seen as acceptable, um, that this is even being proposed um, to weaken the laws. The proposal in Minnesota is to allow children to work on construction sites. In Iowa, it would allow minors more minors to work in meatpacking plants. Um, in addition to extending the hours, and this is happening not just, you know, in those places. New Jersey passed a law um, last year that was enacted that ex- that loosened the state's um, labor protections. So I think overall, there's this question of, and I think I think people who don't pay a lot of attention to labor issues are really paying attention to these child labor stories and are really shocked because there's a question of who are we. As a society. Um, so, I, I mean, I think that the, the increased prevalence stems from, you know, this labor shortage, a lack of enforcement, a lot, la- you know, a number of different factors. Mm. Um, but I think it is sort of much broader even than the kinds of things that we're talking about.
1: Well, that echoes an email we got from John who says it's ridiculous that they are wanting to use child labor to fill the gap in people not working because the reason people aren't working is because you're not providing for them. You're not giving a livable wage. You're not helping them succeed. You're not giving them the benefits that they need. So you're going to instead take advantage of children. Hannah, I I would just love to hear your reflections on some of the intersections we're hearing with this issue there's immigration policy there's the labor shortage i'm sure some people have have talked to you about the us's role abroad and how that may feed into some of the issues that drive people away from their countries seeking safety and economic security i mean <laughs> What have you had to grapple with in trying to to report this story and, and understanding all of these various issues that feed into what we're experiencing right now?
3: It's such a good question. I mean, I'm here on the investigations team at The Times, and we usually look for stories where there's sort of a single bad actor, a bad guy that we can try to put the spotlight on. And this story was so different because, like you say, it's sort of this chain of willful ignorance among all these different agencies immigration policy comes into play, labor policy, child welfare policy. And what I really came away thinking is that these children have fallen through sort of a hole in different safety nets. No single agency is looking out for them. And as a result, they've been exploited to a degree that I doubt many other kinds of people in this country are. And It's also very hard when we try to think about solutions. A lot of people have been reaching out to ask me what can be done. I've been asking the big advocacy groups that really work with these children what they think should be done. And a lot of what they're coming back with is these children should at least have access to universal legal representation. Because like you say, there are so many pressures on them um, from the labor shortage to immigration policy failures. At the very least, what the advocates are saying, they could be protected by by having one adult who really is in their corner, looking out for them.
1: We got this email from Peter, who says it's important to remember that in a lot of farm farming families, working from a young age is an important part of the culture, and inadvertently restricting work on family farms is problematic. Read specifically in that agriculture area, where is the balance?
4: Well, we, we don't really think that um, agriculture should have uh, weaker child labor laws than the rest of the country. Um, you know, There already is an exemption for children working on their parents' farm. Um, those, peop- those kids are not covered. So we're talking about kids who are you know, driven by poverty, who go into the fields and work on, on other people's farms, and we think they deserve the same protections of other kids. Um, so, you know, there, it's, farm work is, is safe and allowable. You know, kids can do that for uh, three hours a day under, you know, on, on a school day under federal law. Um, but, you know, when they start working 10, 12-hour days and, uh, you know, under conditions, you know, working on crops like tobacco, which is a toxic crop that makes, makes kids um, so ill from nicotine poisoning that, that many kids wear black plastic garbage bags while they work, you know, in extreme heat. Um, you know, kids need more protections. Um, we would really love to. You know, one thing we really would love DOL to do is to revise the child occupational safety rules um, that impact agriculture. These haven't been revised in four decades, and uh, they really desperately need revision um, to better protect children from known dangers.
1: Well, New Jersey passed a bill last year expanding the hours that teenagers are allowed to work when school isn't in session. Minnesota's state legislature introduced a bill allowing 16- and 17-year-olds to work construction jobs. Uh, Terry, how is the landscape around child labor shifting in the country, and and is there any way to slow it, stop it, roll it
7: back? Well, I think in terms of slowing it, stopping it, rolling it back – We really need to, there are a few major things I would recommend. One is that we need to fund our labor enforcement agencies. They're grossly underfunded, they're understaffed, they're not able um, to do their their work. David Weil, uh, currently a professor at Brandeis who headed wage and hour enforcement under the Obama administration, said that the agency, the wage and hour division, which enforces not just the child labor laws, but also minimum wage, overtime, the Family Medical Leave Act and other laws, he said that the agency in 1938 had 64 times the relative number of inspectors to workplaces. So we are vastly, vastly under investing in and and not supporting um are enforcement agencies. Well,
1: we should say one of the commitments from the Department of Labor is pushing for more funding for labor enforcement agencies. I want to get to this email from Emily who says, I've taken in two relatives who were unaccompanied migrants, one in 2019, one in 2021. In our cases, all we needed to show was birth certificate trails to prove a relationship and some pay stubs showing there was some kind of household income. Our relatives had never met us in person. What people don't understand is that once they are released to the sponsor, the child can immediately go elsewhere. No one has has official custody. What's next for you and your reporting, Hannah?
3: We're going to keep looking at this issue. I'm so glad that you asked HHS if the results of its internal audit will be public. That's something that we're very interested in. And I mean, we talked to 100 children in this situation. About four of them were in the story that we ran last week. So I think we'll we'll have some more stories coming.
1: That's Hannah Dreyer, an investigative reporter at the New York Times. Again, we'll tweet out a link to her story at 1A. Also with us, Reed Mackey, the director of child labor advocacy at the National Consumers League and head of the Child Labor Coalition. Also with us, Terry Gerstein, the director of the Project on State and Local Enforcement at Harvard Law School's Center for Labor and a Just Economy. Reed, Terry, Hannah, thank you for your time. Today's producer was Arfi Getty. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening. We'll talk more soon. This is 1A.
2: Support for NPR and the following message come from IXL Learning. IXL Learning uses advanced algorithms to give the right help to each kid, no matter the age or personality. Get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when you sign up today at IXL.com NPR. All that sitting and swiping, your body is adapting to your technology. Learn how and what you can do about it. I really felt like the cloud in my brain kind of dissipated.